ninth episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldier or boots on the ground being replaced by private military company, autonomous weapon system and cyber weapons. Having discussed combat drone and private military company in our previous podcast, Today, we start to address the role of cybersecurity. My name is Alessandro Arduino, and I will be the co-host for this series, along with my colleague, Amim Lutfi. Today, we are extremely excited to have with us Jean Yu, former US Special Forces Green Beret that has served in Iraq and in the Philippines. Jean is also a computer study graduate from West Point. Recently, he managed to combine these two fields together as the CEO of Black Panda, Founded initially as a niche special risk insurance consulting firm, Black Panda is now pivoting into cybersecurity service, just here in Singapore. With Gene's unique career trajectory, Outpostcal also is transitioning from private military security company to the world of cybersecurity. So Gene, thank you very much for joining us today. And please let me start uh, just getting into the fry, asking a question. Do kidnapping and negotiation have anything in common with forensic cybersecurity and ransomware? And thank you again for being with us today. Uh, yes, so, uh, thank you, Alex. So, uh, it's my pleasure to be here and uh, happy to talk about this uh, very niche topic in terms of the, uh, the crossover between uh, physical, physical security and cybersecurity. Um, to answer the question directly, yes, I believe that uh, the two are essentially in the same field um, because ultimately, uh, as I always like to say at Black Panda, that uh, cybersecurity is not an IT problem. It is a security problem, fundamentally. It's not a computer that is hacking you from the other side. It's a human being. The human being has friends, um, you know, possibly organization, and maybe even is sponsored uh, from the government side. So, you know, that, that aspect of that human element is always very important to understand when looking at cybersecurity, that it's not an IT problem. It's a security problem. So when we look at something like, um, look at ransomware negotiations, uh, I like to uh, stay, say that uh, this essentially is a kidnap and ransom, but of your data, right? Uh, ultimately, from the attacker's perspective, there's no difference in the objective um, of extorting you of your money. It's just about the avenue or approach they decided to take, right? Uh, if those are the tools that he has uh, in his hand, does he really care about the style that he was able, he or she was able to extort you? Uh, ultimately, they achieved their ultimate objective, which is extortion. So when we look at uh, kidnap and ransom negotiations and ransomware negotiations, they're similar uh, in, 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 uh, in the sense that uh, both sides are counterparties that have no credit with each other and no desire for any long-term relationship, <laughs> right? And so that's going to change quite a bit of the dynamics of the negotiation right off the bat because both sides openly understand from the onset that they're trying to get the better of each other uh, in a one-time deal, right? It's playing poker with just one hand, <laughs> right? And um, another aspect is that uh, a typical tactic that we uh, use in our ransomware negotiations for our clients is uh, proof of life, right? There's a, there's a proof of life procedure uh, in terms of uh, the, the, uh, the hacker actually demonstrating that they can uh, decrypt uh, the, uh, decrypt the, um, the uh, ransomware uh, data set and making sure that they actually can deliver and and uh, 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 resolve the situation if you pay the pay the ransom right um, 
another aspect that I think that is oftentimes overlooked when looking at negotiations uh, for both kidnap and ransom and ransomware is actually the, the most difficult part is the actual exchange, right? The negotiation portion, yes, there's a lot of landmines that, like I just commented, are different from uh, your typical your typical uh, business negotiation. But uh, like in a kidnap and ransom, you imagine it's quite dangerous when you actually exchange the money in exchange for the person. Likewise, how that procedure actually occurs uh, to make sure it's done securely and both sides uh, have confidence in each other in the in the mechanism that they're going to um, they're going to transact. That's important as well, right? By way of like how it's done, essentially essentially in an escrow manner with a, a ransomware facilitation third party, um, and and done in, in again a secure manner. Um, and then the uh, another uh, another aspect that uh, tends to have a lot of parallels that uh, I don't see as often in cyber ransomware negotiation, but that we do at Black Panda because um, or the uh, the lead private sector partner for the United States Secret Service in uh, Asia Pacific is including uh, international law enforcement and their capabilities uh, early on in the, uh, the negotiation. I know we'll get to this a little bit later, but one of the major problems that uh, arise with both kidnap and ransom as well as uh, now cyber ransomware situations is not knowing who the counterparty is and potentially giving payments um, to sanctioned entities, right? And uh, there's a recent U.S. government uh, OFAC advisory with quite stringent regulations around this, and and this is why it's so important to include law enforcement so that you don't accidentally, uh, you know, be, become accused of terrorist financing, <laughs> right? By way of, you know, your actions of just trying to save, you know, your your loved one, or in this case, possibly your data or your business, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, a bit of a long-winded answer, but there's so many, there are a lot of parallels, but at the same time, I would say that I would caution any um, any folk with you know, not that there's a lot of people, there's, there's generally considered to be just about 100 people in the world who are, are true kidnap and ransom uh, consultants. But, uh, you know, so I guess for these 100 people out there in the whole world, it's not like you can just cross over into into, into ransomware. There's a, there is a, a, a technical component of it, uh, making sure that there's a team behind you that understands the threat intelligence of that ransomware malware variant, um, because uh, the, the type of malware that is being used uh, can change the tone of the negotiation as well, right? So for instance, um, there's such a thing these days that I talk about often called uh, ransomware as a service, right? You go into the dark web and you can actually, like a SaaS platform, subscribe and receive and, and purchase uh, ransomware malware uh, to come out and then deploy, uh, even though you don't know anything about hacking, uh, we call these script kitties, right? And uh, my joke about that is that uh, cyber criminals work from home too, right? And so, you know, during COVID, uh, you know, these bad guys have to do something too, right? To continue with their profession. So um, when you get these type of uh, uh, script kitty ransomware as a service type of low level attacks, um, finding that, that they're using some type of common ransomware va variant like that, that may have been uh, reverse engineered uh, to find exploitations, an incident response team like Black Panda has, uh, if they come in, um, may be able to uh, may be able to find uh, areas that you can um, either thwart the malware or you know you know you're not dealing with a attacker that um, is a high level hacker that may be changing the you know changing the attack you know on the fly by writing new scripts and whatnot. Uh, this all plays into the calculus when it comes to advice towards a client of whether you should pay or not. Right? Um, you know, of course. You know, if the if the client has uh, has prepared and actually used uh, and deployed encrypted cloud data backup services like Acronis, uh, one of our partners, um, you know, this, this type of stuff make 
the ransomware negotiation a much different tone as well because you know then it becomes less of an issue of hey uh, if you don't pay me I'm going to destroy your entire business for instance versus I may just embarrass you in front of all your clients by releasing this out of the out into the open internet but since you have a backup all I all I can uh, extort you for that is that type of shame and exposure and and that certainly has quite a bit of impact from a marketing and branding perspective and certainly clients are going to be quite upset you know seeing their data dumped down in the inter- into the uh, open internet like that or, or sold on the dark web whatever but uh, I think we can all agree that it's it's a different level if they are threatening <laughs> we're going to destroy your business entirely right and and you'll never see your data again so so um, so maybe I'll pause there because I feel, I feel like I could, you know continue on and. <laughs> A, a, a rabbit hole here and continue talking, but uh, I'll just pause there for now, Alex, on the question. <laughs> uh, thank you, Gene. Thank you, firstly, I mean, for joining us today and also for that, you know, very illuminating answer. Um, you know, I like that you said that even in a cyber attack at the end of the computer is actually a human being. Mm. Now, I want to change the tone and ask you about, as a human being, about your own trajectory and how your career with the Green Beret actually shaped this too. And what really made you change to make this transition from private security to cybersecurity? Yeah, okay, fair, fair question. <laughs> so, um, so for myself, uh, you know, I grew up in uh, Cupertino, California, uh, where Apple's headquarters. So I've been uh, around computers and computer science uh, my, my whole life, right? I was, coding in Fortran and Pascal when I was like 11, 12 years old, et cetera. Uh, took computer science classes, you know, at the local community college as well as in high school. And then, uh, uh, you know, had no question in my mind when I showed at West Point that I was going to be a computer science uh, undergrad and stacked as many courses as I could. You know, I was quite passionate about it and um, sometimes joke around uh, about my career decisions. But, you know, because I went to West Point, uh, you have to be in the United States Army after you graduate. And I kind of caught onto the idea of, you know, uh, being a U.S. Army officer and wanting to serve along those lines. And when I graduated, 9-11 happened that year. I graduated in 2001. And I got kind of thrown into, you know, all the conflicts that the U.S. the U.S. participated in the last uh, 20 years, right? And so, um, uh, so when I, if you kind of look at it from that, I, I always had, uh, you know, a very deep and strong uh, passion for, um, for IT and computer science. Uh, both my parents are engineers, et cetera. Um, and for me, actually, in my, my life, I actually think that the whole detour into becoming Green Beret was, that was kind of like the weird detour in my course of my life, right? And so um, now coming from the business of running a, uh, a private security company or international security consulting company, um, and then transitioning into cybersecurity, uh, that became more natural for me just in terms of uh, considering myself a military tactician and being able to see that uh, uh, that cybersecurity um, was essentially just the digital extension of the uh, of the physical security world, right? Um, in physical security, the basics and fundamentals like uh, terrain analysis of uh, looking at obstacles, avenues of approach, cover and concealment, uh, key terrain, these 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 fundamentals, don't change when you look at cybersecurity. They still have um, essentially the counterparts or equivalents in the cybersecurity world, and that needs to be accounted for when you're looking at how to how to uh, how to best posture, posture yourself when it when it pertains to uh, IT security. So for me, seeing that these parallels existed, I thought that there was uh, not uh, there wasn't that much of a difficulty for me to cross over by way of especially as a businessman um, and understanding how to 
sell and market security and having built a business around that, and particularly, again, uh, tied to insurance, which is another facet I actually feel that's financial security. Um, you know, security is insurance, insurance is security, uh, these, these sort, sort of things that we can, we can delve into as well. But, um, but fundamentally, why I ended up changing and pivoting Black Panda from a physical security business into cybersecurity is just frankly, is that cybersecurity is just so much more scalable and much, a much larger market uh, in the longer term view from uh, my perspective. Um, one of the things that I noticed when I was, uh, which we made great money with Black Panda, and I'm very proud of the client list that we assembled in, um, particularly in the Philippines, where uh, we ended up signing the number one or number two top top company in energy, mining, banking, uh, integrated resorts, casinos, et cetera. Um, what I came to realize is that uh, the way that the world is in facing the problems and the threat of cybersecurity is as though the whole world lives in the conditions of like Iraq right now, <laughs> right? Like that's how much threat is ongoing. It's that, it's that type of operational environment, right? Whereas in the physical security world, to have that level of threat and, then, and the willingness to pay and the market size for this type of higher level security service really only exists in these uh, more unstable and, uh, and dangerous areas in the world, right? Where uh, the police and security apparatus, the military and the police cannot be uh, fully fully uh, relied upon, uh, both due to um, both due to, uh, to resources as well as uh, just the political conditions and then just the status, et cetera. That's kind of like what the cybersecurity world is like, right? You can't just call the police and expect that some tier one cybersecurity element is going to come and just solve your problem, right? As you know, when you're robbed, attacked, or threatened in the cyber world, there isn't that type of 911 hotline you could call in a developed country. Um, you know, as for instance, let's say the United States, you know, the police will show up and generally, you know, that competent police are going to show up and generally resolve a situation when you're being attacked, right? That doesn't exist in the cybersecurity world. And I like to make that comparison to, um, to high risk, high risk areas, right? Essentially the entire world is living in a high risk area when you make that physical analogy equivalent. And when I came to realize that, that there was that much more business on the cybersecurity side, as well as the ability to build tech products that could scale um, in a much larger way, then I saw a much larger business opportunity for us to gravitate towards that, that direction, right? So that's, that's fundamentally the opportunity that I saw. Nice, Eugene. There are very intriguing similarities between private military and security companies and uh, private cybersecurity company. And first and foremost, as you just mentioned, and business is one of uh, this commonality. But I'm sure that uh, in your previous private security career, uh, personal physical risk uh, was also an issue in, yeah. in, uh, in the equation. Yeah. Uh, one, when we just started our chat about cybersecurity and ransomware, you mentioned financing terrorism and state-led actors. Mm. So let, let's move in this direction. If we have criminal or political motivated actors mm. using ransomware virus attack, something like WannaCry, for example, yeah. uh, and they could hold hostage not only, let's say, military installation or corporation, but also civilian target, such yeah. as hospital. And in this case, it's not a matter only of uh, losing brand reputation or just losing money, but you can even lose life. Yeah. But then you realize uh, that uh, some of the attacker or the attacker are not only state-led, but can be linked to a terrorist organization. And then in this case, we, we are talking about uh, uh, financial terrorism. Then uh, if we move from this, uh, uh, when you manage a crisis in a cyber world, uh, there is much of difference in assessing, mitigating, 
and managing the crisis from, let's say, the, the virtual world and the real world. Yeah, so I mean, I would say that to be honest, um, a lot of the elements are fundamentally the same when it comes down to uh, making sure that uh, as the crisis, the, you know, what we call in, in cyber, we call them breach coaches, okay, or incident managers. And then in, um, in, uh, in, uh, in the physical world, which we call them the, the crisis, the crisis uh, commanders, or the, you know, the crisis consultants. Um, the element of uh, making sure that uh, all the different aspects of security are, are covered by way of the, the proper advice in terms of managing crisis, of course, are there. Those, you know, the fundamentals of, you know, of, of that aspect of security, but also what's quite important to um, to bring into bear is also the le- the legal concerns as well, and making sure that there's uh, uh, what the what the victim and the uh, the especially if it's corporate, you know, what what kind of concerns they have from that perspective, as well as uh, crisis public relations and making sure. Whatever messaging that needs to go out to the public is uh, ideally uh, some, some some something thought and analyzed um, prior uh, prior to getting out there and, and making sure that that message is, is on point, right? So um, I think that uh, with any with any crisis, uh, you know, that the the key always comes in in uh, in the preparation, right? Uh, you know, the time to think about how to react to a crisis is not when the crisis occurred. Right. That's you are real. You're way late. You screwed up a long time ago at that point. If you've never thought about the scenario and you're dealing with the crisis and to expect that some superhero is going to show up and just immediately understand how to solve your 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 uh, your situation um, on short notice like that with having no context, uh, no plan in place is a very tall order. Right. And so um, so whether it be physical or cyber crisis, I always emphasize the importance of having a proper uh, response plan, right? What is your business continuity plan in place, right? Um, you know, I, I, making, a, again, a simple analogy is a fire, right? Uh, which is a type of physical crisis as well, not as spectacular as the type of ones we're talking about here that are, um, are motivated and, and, uh, uh, and uh, generated from, uh, from kind of a, an enemy opposing, opposing threat. But uh, if a fire breaks out and nobody has any idea where the fire exits are, what the procedures are, you know, any of that, I mean, you can imagine, well, actually, historically, we already know that there was quite, quite a bit of mayhem and people would die, you know, unnecessarily, you know, in these type of scenarios, right? And so what it required was now, in most developed countries, mandatory fire drills, like for in schools, you know, constantly having fire drills and rehearsals and whatnot, so that there's no confusion, so that if the crisis occurs, that's the preparation has already been put in place so that everybody generally has an idea of what they're supposed to do. Uh, one of the things actually that uh, um, uh, one of the services that we provide is, is uh, uh, not only incident response plans, uh, bespoke plans as well as playbooks, uh, but also tabletop exercises, right? And running through the actual crisis scenarios with leadership of uh, large organizations. Um, and we've done this historically across Black Panda, both in the physical and the cyberspace, uh, particularly with our niche that we can combine combine the two because we've actually seen and responded to crises where uh, cyber attack uh, came in waves after a physical attack as, as hackers around the world took advantage of a very spectacular headlining event. Um, you know, these sort of things uh, uh, are very difficult to come up with new ideas on the spot, particularly if you've never thought through them before, right? And especially in that emotional state, right? Uh, in, in a post-crisis. And so, we're very um, encouraging uh, of, uh, of, uh, of companies that uh, are interested to put in the time in a tabletop exercise or essentially a, a dress rehearsal of sorts so they can go through the process and think through what would they do in this situation, right? 
what would what would they do in the situation that um, a, a ransomware attack came in and then they were hit with an extortion note and if they didn't pay it within 24 hours, it's going to double every 24 hours going forward. And then if it hits three days, that all the you know all of, all of your uh, data is going to be uh, destroyed. And you'll never see it again. I mean, just just think through it as a leadership team and talk through right just one time so that when it actually occurs, yes, you may rethink what you decided earlier. But at least you've thought through it, right? And a lot, a lot of that uh, discussion is out of the way, and, and it's been processing and, and marinating in people's heads. So, and that—that's what I've always discovered is where organizations, anywhere from whether it be the military or whether it be a private sector that I've seen, uh, because look, I've been dealing, uh, you know, I've been I've been operating and working uh, with crisis, you know, for the last 20 years of my career. It always comes down to the preparation, you know, the folk that put in just a little bit of time. There's a massive difference, a massive ROI payout for just even a little bit of time versus zero time, right? Um, and of course, you know, there's diminishing returns as you, as you continue. You can over, you can only prepare so much, right? You can diminishing returns. But my point is that from zero to just a little bit has a massive impact. And uh, that, that I think is, if I could communicate anything, is maybe the most important thing is just just having a plan in place, right? Having your fire sprinklers set up, right? Having a fire alarm set up, right? You know, having a fire station where you know the phone number and to call, you know, uh, and that's those equivalents I like to make to cyber as well is, you know, uh, for instance, like the fire sprinkler system and to me is uh, the in, your endpoint detection response platform, right? And having that software installed, um, having instant response team like us or cyber firefighters knowing our phone number, having us, you know, on retainer or a signed contract or whatever. So, you know, at least you can call us and we'll show up and not waste any time while your house is on fire. Right. Um, so, and these are, these are the points I would make. Gene, if I could take you back to a comment that you made to an earlier question about the cyber world maybe being a little bit like, you know, the entire cyber world is, is like Iraq. Mm. Uh, now in, in the private security sector, the physical private security sector, Iraq is like, or at least early Iraq war days are the, are the bad times when it was kind of like a wild west. Mm. And there's this idea that now the sector has kind of improved and now there's a lot of regulations coming in. You mm. kind of, you know, wean out the bad uh, firms from the good firms. You have a set of protocols and so on and so forth. Is there something similar happening within the cybersecurity uh, level? I mean, in terms of particularly in terms of regulating the kind of companies who are involved, or mm. is it still like a wild west? And I ask this because I mean, the the boundary between you know uh, protection and racketeering is so vague. A security company could go and ask money for ransom as well. So, is there some work being done internationally or nationally at regulating who can be a cybersecurity firm? Yeah. So right now, uh, no, <laughs> as far as I can see. So I, I would describe it. Yes, as a little bit more like the Wild West at the earlier days of, especially private military, the private military industry uh, in the Middle East in the early two thousands and whatnot. Um, I would state that there are uh, very respected international organizations with certifi certifications and accreditations. Um, like for instance, uh, uh, SANS uh, for the States, CREST for the UK. Uh, th these are general gold standard accreditations that you'll need to legitimize yourself as a cybersecurity company. And they're generally held uh, by the individuals that you have, like the actual cybersecurity experts themselves. And that legitimizes you as an organization, the fact that you have these certified and qualified individuals right so um 
yeah, so I guess to listeners, if you're thinking about hiring, you know, a third party vendor or, or cybersecurity expert company, these are the type of things that you have to look at is generally those certifications. It's interesting, right? Because cybersecurity is such a new field. Um, there's only a handful. I mean, there's more and more these days, but there's uh, with uh, university programs, it's not a formalized, generally speaking, a formalized academic program. You know, actually at NUS, I'm aware there is a cybersecurity program. So, but you know, that's, that's ahead of its time a little bit, right? It's just starting to really catch on like that. Um, we hire people all, you know, at Black Panda who haven't even gradu haven't graduated from u university, right? But they have had the right certifications, then I know that they have the right skills of what we need by, by way. Like that's that's the actual gold standard when it comes to um, regulation and, and standardization along those, line, along those lines. Um, I would make a segue comment that uh, that uh, uh, that triggers from what, what you've brought up is that oftentimes ransomware attackers will try to frame themselves as though they are doing a service for the <laughs> for the client. They, they figured out the psychology of the ransomware negotiation to try to frame themselves as though they are freelancing vigilante offensive security consultants who have found a vulnerability, they're demonstrated it to them, and now you owe us some money because we've showed you something that uh, could could uh, could be really exploited by somebody really bad, right? Would take advantage of you. But since we're good guys, all you need is pay us for having found you know this uh, this, this security gap and vulnerability in your system. That's pretty funny, right? But it's an interesting just kind of side comment because of what what those people have discovered actually is that um, psychologically sometimes they actually get those victims to pay more willingly without engaging an incident response firm or engaging law enforcement or going through going through all these means and just paying easier by framing themselves in a friendlier manner that way. So kind of funny to your point about, you know, that blend of, you know, where a legitimate cybersecurity company and, you know, basically extortionists, maybe you could kind of take along those lines, but certainly, um, yeah, certainly I, I'm, I'm, look, I, I'm on the blue team side of the house, right? As Black Panda, like we just respond to quite, it's very difficult for us to be construed as bad guys coming in and helping you after you've been attacked by somebody else. Uh, I can't comment about the red team side of the house, the offensive security engineers who essentially are hackers, that ethical hacker penetration testers, really the red teaming side is the more hardcore, hardcore side. Um, but generally speaking, I think the companies, you know, we, we have partner companies that do that, that sort of work. I mean, I'd be very remiss to, to say anything that I think that they cross any lines. I, th I think they're completely above board. Um, there's plenty of business if you want to wander off into the, into the dark web and, and be a cyber mercenary for hire and stuff like that, be an actual black hat. Plenty of work for you down there. You don't even have to mas you don't have to masquerade as a, as a white hat during, <laughs> during the, uh, day the daytime, so to speak. If we want to stretch what you just mentioned with the zero-day exploit, I think there was just a case a few days ago when uh, a Bitcoin uh, uh, was uh, exchange was hacked, uh, more than $2 million, and then the same company offered to the hacker $200,000 additionally to pinpoint where was the problem in their mm. security. Right, right, but, right. Uh, we, we are talking about, uh, as Amin mentioned, the kind of wild, wild west, uh, uh, and it's not only referred to cybersecurity. If, if we move uh, recently from Libya to Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, we are witnessing an increased use uh, of uh, armed UAV that are better known uh, as combat drone. Mm. Uh, these drones are creating new security, legal, legal and ethical issue uh, that need a swift response. Swift response mm. is not here. 
Mm. Same thing, cyber weapon, cyber criminal, state-sponsored attack online can wreak havoc. We already realized that, but there is still no right or wrong rule of the game. Mm. So let me go back uh, to financing and terrorist financing, especially. So, for example, if your company advises on ransomware negotiation payment and the fund reach at the end a terrorist organization, are you, and I mean Black Panda in this case, going to be liable for terrorism funding? Mm. And especially what kind of lesson you can draw uh, applying again from the private military sector to the cyber one? Yeah, so this is an interesting one uh, that, that uh, I came across actually in the kidnap and ransom uh, industry and discovered there are um, e exclusion clauses when uh, you know, particularly a life is on the line, that if a ransom is paid, and even though it's a sanctioned entity like a terrorist organization, there's a clause out for that, right? They don't, the gov US government or, or any government doesn't expect that you, in that situation around that reason, will allow a loved one to just be killed, you know, for instance, right? Now, of course, this becomes a gray, much gray, more gray area when it comes around to, well, okay, then how do you measure what's that uh, you know, that, that red line of, you know, that is too much to ask of a person in that situation because it's a sanctioned entity. And that's where it gets very muddled, you know, for cyber ransomware, because, you know, if a person's entire business is on the line with, let's say hundreds of people, you know, on payroll and their entire, their entire, um, you know, their, their, uh, uh, their means of, of providing for their families is all on the line, you know, that you're not willing to release this this payment, but then your entire company is going to be destroyed literally overnight, right? And maybe a lifetime of of uh, of, of, of work and body into it. Uh, that gets quite gray as well, right? And so, um, I just recently did a webinar uh, with our partners at the U.S. Secret Service about this, actually, with the OFAC advisory, and uh, I really appreciated um, uh, the the, uh, the the Secret Service stance on this. Is that uh, so, so they're one of the lead proponent international agencies uh, combating cyber financial crime, right? Um, uh, the, there's a quick comment. The Secret Service is, uh, uh, I always try to joke around. It's, it's not really all that well named. Uh, there's nothing really secret about the Secret Service. We're talking about it right now and everybody knows what we're talking about. <laughs> uh, they're most well known for protecting the U.S. president and dignitaries, but uh, they also have oversight of um, investigations uh, around the U.S. the U.S. currency. And so um, generally speaking, that extends out into uh, cyber financial crime and, the, and how it pertains to U.S. financial institutions. They have quite a, quite a wide purview um, and uh, authority from the U.S. government in terms of freezing bank accounts, investigating uh, cyber financial crime, because uh, almost all financial, international financial transactions eventually touch a U.S. financial institution or, or exchange the USD, right? So um, anyway, so the reason why I bring that up is because uh, what the, what uh, the Secret Service has said is that in these types of situations, this is why it's so important to uh, to engage with uh, law enforcement early on, so that they can help advise through the through the process as well, right? And there is a good faith type of attitude taken. Is that um, you know if there's something that called a you know willful blind uh, willful blindness, I think is the term that he used, right? Uh, um, where uh, right off the bat, you realize it's a sanctioned entity. You don't do anything to try to mitigate, investigate, try to negotiate, like try to to try to avoid the situation. And you're just like, whatever. I just want to get this get this done as quickly as possible, and then just hit send on that payment. That's a very different situation with somebody else who has invested the resources to hire the lead, you know, uh, the lawyers, the instant responders, the uh, the threat intelligence, right? Trying to figure out any way to get, get around this, engaging with law enforcement, getting the advice and walking it all the way through to the point where there's literally no choice 
and out of good faith that they had to make the decision. That was something that they said that that was would be taken greatly into account in uh, in the uh, in the case proceedings afterwards. Therefore, of course, it has to be investigated um, and explored afterwards. But it was something that they would be taken great great greatly into account. Um, for Black Panda's perspective, at the end of the day, uh, we are consultants. It's the client's call, you know, at the end of the day of how they're how they're going to handle that that situation, right? And so, for us as well. Um, if it did come down to a sanctioned uh, sanctioned entity, we would be, uh, I mean, as I just described, we have a close relationship with the Secret Service. There's no way we would do it without without top cover and making sure that they were uh, involved and, and aware. And uh, you know, another thing that I would mention as well is that a lot of people don't realize, but uh, cryptocurrency can be traced, right? That is, that is not that is, that is an that is a urban legend myth that continues to, to proceed right now. There is there are a couple out there that that cannot really cannot be, but the Secret Service does have. Um, the technology to to uh, to follow that, and so they want to be involved because they want to track these guys down and uh, put them put them behind bars, right? And so, um, you know, when you're on the blue team side of the house like this, uh, it's, it's pretty. It, for me, I think the lines are a lot more clear in terms of, um, you know, or you know, it's very seldom that people people are upset when firefighters show up, right, to help you <laughs> try to put out the fire. And so, look, we're just trying to help the client get through. Um, get through the crisis and, and get back on the feet, and uh, keeping close coordination with uh, the you know the right the right authorities. I think is a critical part of the whole process. Yeah, Gene, I'm glad you brought up um, secret services here, because mm. uh, my question, I mean, from from what it seems like, uh, cybersecurity as an industry seems to be led by private industry. But would you say there's still a role for state security agencies in well? Because I mean, we're seeing like you know, like with the the what is it, the space force being formed under Trump. But there's nothing similar in like cybersecurity police, cybersecurity army, something like that. Do you think there's a possibility or there's a need for states to invest in it themselves rather than going private? Well, actually, I would uh, I would challenge that. Actually, I, I do think that there's um, there are uh, military arms being built just around cyber. There are cyber armies uh, being built, uh, or, or not even being built, that are, exist and have been in existence for quite a while, actually. Um, you know, I'm talking like 20 years, like for instance, is when China started building its own cyber cyber command. Um, it's like, an, I, if I believe, sorry, if, if I misquote this, uh, it's not on top of mind uh, right now, but uh, I believe it's part of the, the People's Liberation Army, it's a division of it. But I do recall, even as a cadet at West Point, that that was being talked about. Um, there is such a thing as uh, United States Cyber Command that over, uh, oversees the National Security Agency, and it essentially is the cyber militarized arm for the United States. Uh, Israel has the famous unit uh, 8200, um, et cetera. So, uh, you know, these, these organizations um, uh, out there uh, are, you know, meant, I believe, uh, that are for uh, warfare, right? Um, you know, at West Point, one of the things that stick with me in terms of uh, studying military history is uh, air land, uh, air land battle doctrine from uh, developed by the Soviets in the 80s, right? Which is uh, simply simply said is get air superiority first, right? Control the skies and then come in on the on the land attack, right? Um, to limit damage and and uh, you know all that type of stuff. I I, I think that uh, we're going to see that uh, there's going to be a, a word cyber added in front of air land doctrine, cyber air land, right? Why wouldn't you? First, uh, you know, take out the infrastructure of, of, uh, of, uh, you know, the the uh, the opposing the opposing countries, uh, uh, you know, military as well as as well as our private sector before going in and softening the target, right? Um, you know, we saw, 
we saw this capability through Stuxnet, um, you know, and various other various other attacks as well down the road that uh, you know it's widely believed to have been uh, conducted by uh, uh, the U.S. and, and uh, Israel against the Iranian uh, nuclear nuclear power sites, right? Or and so I think this sort of thing is uh, cyber warfare. Um, at one point, also I would say it's happening already in a low to medium uh, com uh, conflict intensity uh, already between between great powers and nation states. And I think that if a hot conflict was to uh, to escalate, that we would see that escalate into a much hotter, right, uh, status first, right, of, of attacks from one country to another, actually trying to take out each other's power grids, um, you know, uh, disrupting financial, you know, financial systems, you know, this sort of thing before you would see that kind of traditional, you know, the traditional uh, conventional military type of attack, right? Why, why wouldn't you, if you had that capability at your fingertips, right? Why risk people's soldiers, sailors, airmen's lives um, when you can just have a bunch of hackers and uh, some, you know, some build a safe build, air conditioned building somewhere, you know, deploying cyber weapons, you know, from afar like that, right? So. I see what um, you were just discussing with uh, Amim, uh, basically something that we already been seeing for a while uh, in terms of cyber warfare. From China, the doctrine uh, is unrestricted warfare, if the translation from Chinese is correct. Uh, from Russia uh, is the most updated uh, Gerasimov doctrine that stem from Primakov doctrine. And then if we move even uh, to North Korea, we can say that uh, there is a weaponization of cryptocurrency. But please let me take it back from cyber warfare to, to the financial side and the importance of cybersecurity in a global financial hub, especially because we are here in Singapore, but not only Singapore, let me think something like in the Gulf, like Dubai, uh, where securing digital financial market, uh, it's uh, essential. It's mm -hmm. critical for sustaining economic development. In, in this case, uh, uh, what are, in your opinion, up to now, the best practice for creating a safe cyberspace? And uh, again, if I recall correct, uh, you, uh, and by you I mean uh, Black Panda, is cooperating with Singapore police uh, on some project. And I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the strategy that uh, you think have been uh, useful up to now. Thank you. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, when I talk about when we talk about creating a cyber, you know, a safe cyberspace, I mean, it's just a holistic question, right? Just like, again, I always want to just bring this back into the analogies of physical security, right? Like, how do we create a safe physical space for everybody as well, right? And um, you know, for 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 me, first and foremost, um, I would I would comment that uh, our philosophy and mentality at Black Panda is on the response side, um, meaning that uh, we. We, we, think, we don't think it's a matter of if you're going to be hacked, it's a matter of when. And uh, so while there's a lot of great products, software and services to help you build the castle walls around your house, the fact of the matter is just like in the physical world, if I build a 10 meter tall wall around my house, uh, if a bad guy wants to spend the money and uh, buy a 10 meter tall ladder, he'll put a ladder up and then climb over my wall, right? And so what I do then, maybe I build a 20 meter tall wall Right, and invest the money and resource and time to build that, then they do the same thing 20 meters. We, we can go all the way to 10,000 meters high, right? And But if they, that person is well-resourced enough, motivated, um, they will build, build a 10,000 meter tall ladder and still climb into my house, right? What I'm hoping from a philosophy standpoint is that if I build a 10,000 meter tall wall around my, my castle, I hope my neighbor who has no walls, they just go attack that guy, 
right? So, sorry, in this, in this sense, you know, it's not about everybody, sorry, it's not about everybody being safe. It's about not being the slowest gazelle on the Serengeti, right? And that, that famous quote, you know, the sun rises in Africa or whatever. So um, that's more my mentality when it comes to cybersecurity right now is, uh, and, and also I would comment is that the ladders are going up exponentially faster than the walls, right? So I'm playing a game in cybersecurity where I'm not part of the walls or the ladders. I'm standing off to the side, okay, in a cavalry, you know, in a horse stable with my cavalry. And after they've breached your walls, I'm coming in to try to help you and eject them back out, out of the wall again, right? And so, um, so I guess like uh, from, from that perspective, I think that there, there does need to be close coordination with, uh, with government. Um, I think that one of the things that we have uh, missing in Asia, which is why actually I would like to make this comment um, in, our, in our conversation is that Asia is, uh, is vastly behind in cybersecurity awareness and posture in comparison to um, the US and, and Europe actually. And uh, the reason why, in my opinion, is lack of government uh, regulation and data privacy fines, okay? So um, it, Singapore is actually leading in the space in Asia. Uh, just recently, the PDPA announced that they've raised the annual the, uh, the, the maximum fine uh, for a data privacy breach from uh, to 10% of annual turnover of 1 million Singapore dollars. In comparison, GDPR, which is considered to be the most stringent uh, data privacy regulation in, in the world right now, uh, the maximum fine is 4% of annual turnover or 20 million euros. Okay, So Singapore's is higher in theory, but we've never seen a real fine here in Singapore. There are, are a lot of data breaches. I'll share that uh, without obviously sharing client, client names, but there's a lot of data breaches. Uh, it's not as though cybersecurity and hackers are not touching Asia. It's that companies aren't reporting it, right? They're not reporting when client data is released, uh, released into the dark web and sold. They're not really reporting, you know, all this. now PDPA now just recently made it mandatory to notify the regulators um, when they've been breached, which is a huge step. Uh, as far as I'm tracking right now, the only Asian country that requires that, okay? For, for instance, Hong Kong, it does not require, it's just recommended, right? And uh, um, so there haven't been these type of fines, which also causes companies to not spend on cybersecurity, right? Because if you're not going to be fined, like say like uh, you're fined only 10,000 10, Sing, which literally happened to one of the largest, largest tech companies here. I'm not going to name them by name, but they're breached, I believe, for the fourth time. And all the regulators here in Singapore did was slap, slap them with a 10,000 10, Sing fine. That doesn't even cover uh, a few days of our response work. Right, so if um, if the fines aren't commensurate with how much uh, it costs for cybersecurity services and products to properly secure yourself, the companies are not incentivized to actually protect the the clients and customers' information. Right, who suffers from that? Actually, ultimately, in it's actually just the average, the common, the common consumer, right? Because they're not being protected by better business practices because the government isn't enforcing on it. It's it's logical, right? I, I do we do have clients. Where this comes up where they've been breached we come in we do about half the work um sometimes and they and they realize oh the regulators don't need uh this information um even though yes it's very we don't need to continue figuring out who's which one of our clients and customers data has been leaked uh because how would they know that it's us <laughs> you know and all this type of stuff it's a little bit disturbing to share this the short source stuff but this is the problem with um with government regulation not being stringent enough uh, in, in Asia. And so when you ask that question about how to make a safe, secure space, it starts from the government and policy and uh, making sure that uh, companies uh, are accountable uh, for cybersecurity and protecting uh, 
um, protecting uh, the, their customers and clients, right? I, I, I can't stand it when I see, <laughs> you know, announcements of breaches uh, here in Asia and all my credit card information I know is out there and I'm out there canceling my cards and, you know, my passport information is out there, blah, 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 all this type of stuff. It's it's, it's quite a, quite an irritant, yeah. So, um, yeah, so anyway, so I would, my, my focal point of my answer to that would start from government regulation and uh, it, it can trickle down from there in terms of making sure companies are going forward and investing the proper resources in prevention, detection, uh, response, insurance, right? Making sure they have the resiliency to stay afloat, you know, even if they got hacked, uh, all sorts of things and everything, again, that's been developed in the physical safety and security world that we need from A to Z, whether it be, uh, you know, um, in all facets of that aspect of security, um, it's already been played on the physical world that needs to be transposed into the cybersecurity world, right? So, Gene, if, yeah. so if, I mean, it's kind of worrying if, if a sort of relatively well-to-do countries in Asia with a thriving, uh, you know, uh, financial market are not investing in it. Is there any hope for like more like developing countries, developing countries that might not have, uh, you know, a very large online market space as this? And are there even like for, for some of these countries, for some of the, the these developing countries, are there sort of cheaper products that cost less than, you know, $10,000 for a few days? Mm. Yeah, so, okay, so I would say that, uh, um, number one, yes, it's a huge challenge for uh, developing countries. And that, that, is, that is a much larger, um, larger problem if, the, you know, it's gonna have to lead with the, the developed country first in terms of if they can't solve it, then how can the developing countries solve, right? Um, you know, the Philippines is like, one, I think rated the number three or number four highest, uh, highest attacked, uh, cyber, highest cyber attacked country in the world. Um, you know, partly in reason, in my belief, is because of the uh, the close tie-in between the banks and the uh, the casinos and the junkets, right? Kind of the shadow banking system, you know, all that type of stuff. But that's that's a situation and environment where you know we Black Panda we have a, a long-standing presence in the Philippines and office there. Um, that is a big problem there because the the general infrastructure itself is so underdeveloped and it's very difficult to kind of climb out of that to deal with these these cyber issues, right? Um, are there cheaper options? Unfortunately, no, because there's a major shortage of cybersecurity professionals in the world as well, right? There's a major shortage, right? This is, this is not something like um, you can just, uh, you know, send somebody to like a two-week course and then come out and then now they're a cyber incident responder, right? This is a highly technical skill set, which compounds the problem even further, right? Um, you know, that's one of the things too is, you know, you could... Uh, you know, physical security, for instance, to be honest, you know, when you think about the type of the supply of people out there to be blue guards, for instance, that's a commodity, right? That equivalent in cybersecurity, there's a major shortage of those jobs. I, th I think I saw statistics either, uh, uh, the last statistic I saw, I believe, is that there's 3 million uh, jobs waiting to be filled in cybersecurity right now globally, and it's just increasing every day. Um, just fundamentally, when you think about why cybersecurity is such a problem and why it's growing every day, there's tech is, is rapidly advancing at an unbelievable pace. You know, all the stats around that, blah, 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 all the being, you know, all the data that's being created, et cetera. All the companies that are rushing to market because you have to, because otherwise they'll get, they'll get wiped out by the competition or rush the product in the market without proper QAQC or secure code review. And um, is introducing security flaws into, into the market. 
as well as connecting and uh, interconnecting with so many different third-party apps. Every single one of those connections has its own uh, problems with security flaws, gaps and vulnerabilities. And this just continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. So, um, so I apologize, I can only paint a dim picture, um, <laughs> a, a very bearish picture for developing countries, especially frontier, frontier markets. Um, you know, already I feel that uh, in developed countries, it's as though, uh, you know, rather than living in a fortified, you know, house with a compound and walls and, and doormen, most people are living in bamboo huts, okay, with maybe like a, a little, you know, latch key as your, the lock to your door. Uh, I, I don't even recall that in frontier markets, like in tents or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very open out there right now. Now, one, one aspect that is, is uh, somewhat heartening, I guess, is because cyber attack is generally considered a technical skill as well. There's only a certain number of people that can really affect uh, the, the complex level attacks at a, at a large scale. And they're generally going after developed markets because that's where the money is, right? Uh, especially when you're talking about crim the criminality side of cyber. Um, but again, now that there's industries like ransomware as a service popping up where script kitties can come in and just download that sort of stuff. Um, I think we're, we're just going to, well, this is again, from the beginning of our conversation, this is why I came into this industry. Uh, I just see there's be no shortage of work uh, in my lifetime, you know, coming to this and it's a, it's a big opportunity in the, in the industry. Jin, previously you mentioned the taller wall and taller ladder. That, uh, especially for me, coming from Turin, that is at the top of the north of Italy, when uh, at the time uh, it was the Savoia Kingdom and not even the Republic, uh, the, the wall were so tall that the siege artillery of the invading army were not able to bridge it. So the competition was uh, taller and thicker wall and bigger gun. Mm. But at the end, in one day, it changed to tunnel warfare. So it was mine and countermine. Mm -hmm. So moving on to this, I'm asking you uh, to end this interview, the million dollar question. Yeah. And it's basically a question that we ask to all of our guests. And uh, in this respect on cyber, in your opinion, what will the future of cybersecurity management in a complex environment is going to look uh, in the coming 30 years? Yeah, so I think that, uh, well, certainly there's a lot of investment going in from, um, from the West. And like I said, Singapore is leading in, in the space in Asia. Um, I think that we will eventually over the next 30 years train enough cybersecurity professionals that the government will start having to take a hand in this, right? Just like in physical, uh, physical security, right? Um, you know, again, my analogy to it is that it's as though we're living and there's no police, right? There's no firefighters. Everything is privatized. Only the wealthy can afford uh, to have any security. It's like when I'm in the Philippines and all the wealthy have armies of bodyguards around them in private security at their private homes, right? Because they can't rely fully on the police uh, and, and, the, and the apparatus to, to protect them, right? Same in any, any uh, uh, more frontier and, and higher risk area in the, in the physical side. So I think that, uh, you know, just like again in the physical world, we watch that uh, grow, right, in developed, in developed countries and, and uh, eventually provide that type of service from the government um, to, uh, to the general, general populace, right? I think always there's going to be a, a tipping scale where the elite and the, uh, the affluent will always be able to have get, get access to higher levels of security. Um, you know, but what, uh, you know, uh, the question earlier about about uh, what solution can there be for folk that can't afford this, eventually that has to be provided by government, right? Um, you know, it won't be necessarily 
as as great as you know the type of service the wealthy can can uh, can afford. But I believe that uh, eventually governments will have to provide that sort of service, right? And so, um, you know, the other comment I would just have about you know the thirty year journey is that unfortunately, since the first human met another human, uh, learned how to hurt hurt each other <laughs> and take take things, you know, by force and whatnot. And just like in the physical security world, where you know the bad guys. Um, or the good guys figure out a tactic that uh, thwarts the bad guys, the bad guys figure out a new one, right? And then it's just a tit for tat, tit for tat, as both sides play this never-ending game, you know? Um, right, it's one of the oldest professions in the world, uh, soldiers, right? You know, so, and I, I think that this is just another another battlefield, but it's the same thing, actually, is what I'm trying to, is if there's any message I'm trying to get out here in my whole story, is that it's not actually a new thing. Okay, it's just a different terrain and a new playing playing field. It's the whole evolution just of, you know, one counteraction against the other, the good guys and the bad guys as they figure out how to hurt each other. And they just, it's just continuing on extending now into the digital world. So it's actually just the same thing, right? Um, just that uh, people haven't really, not everybody's made that mindset shift because they think it's just an IT problem. It's not, it's a security problem. Yeah. Well. Thank you so much, Gene, for being with us here today. I mean, this was absolutely fascinating. And thank you so much for, I mean, you know, we don't always hear this perspective of, of you know, cybersecurity in itself being an extension of an older problem. And I think that really brings a lot of clarity into the field. And so I hope all our listeners will have also enjoyed listening into you today. And thank you everyone for um, tuning in. Uh, in the end, I want to thank some of the people who have been working in the background with our podcast. In particular, I want to give a shout out to Wei Chen, who has been doing all the transcripts that you see online, all the editing. It has been Wei Chen. So, I mean, a big thank you for her for doing this. And also some of the people who have been involved in the transcription and the recording and all the editing processes, Ilyas, Fozan, Fadil, Kevin. Um, thank you, everyone, and thank you for the MEI, you know, communication team and associate director. Uh, until next time, thank you, everyone.